So we are uh, back in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 11. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, that would be great. Acts chapter 11. And I know I just had you sit down, but you guys have gotten a little bit used to me by now. <laughs> so I'm going to have you stand again if you're able as I read the Word of God. I like to have a stand to honor God's Word. Amen? We're starting our reading today in verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came he and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days the prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so once again, Lord, we come to your word and we pray you would bring it to life to us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Doug, again, I'm getting a little bit of that bottom end. I don't know if you can adjust that at all. It'd be good if you could. So when you read about this church, you might say, I want a church like that. I want to have a church like the church in Antioch. You know, some of the churches that we study and we look at in the in the early church, you know, a lot of people say, we'd like to have a church like the book of Acts, right? But some, some people think, well, what was it like during that time? Totally. And you think, well, oh, the Jerusalem church or this Antioch church, but you got to remember there also was the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church was a very corrupt church. They were getting drunk at the communion table. They had immorality going on in the church. They were suing each other. And Paul had to deal with them and rebuke them. And then when you look at the churches in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus had to deal with every one of them with problems that were going on in the church. Even the book of church of Ephesus, which was considered in so many ways the one of the greatest churches. And yet by the time, just 30 years after the time of Christ in the book of Revelation, Jesus had to say, you've left your first love. 
So when we say we want an early church experience, what do we mean? Well, the church in Antioch was a church that maybe would be one you'd say, yeah, we'd like to have a church like that. And yet it was in one of the most unlikely places. You know, sometimes we think we want a church, and, and some, some people might think of it in this terms, the Bible Belt, you know. Or, you know, the, let, let's go to the place where all the Christians are and have a really great church. But, you know, in Antioch, this was actually a place that was the most unlikely because it was, it was not a nice place. It was, it was considered probably the third greatest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria population at that time of about 500,000 people in Antioch. Big city. And it was known for its sophistication and culture, but also for its immorality and, and for its, its idolatry in Antioch. And yet that's the place that God picked to actually send out the first missionaries into the world. You're going to study that when you get, get to Acts 13. Very interesting how God did that. Now, we saw in the previous section, in the first 11 verses, or the first 18 verses of chapter 11, the story of the conversion, of the retelling of the conversion of Cornelius, and how Peter had to face the music about that to the uh, Jerusalem people. And uh, how Peter answered so eloquently and, and gave a great defense. And it says, when they heard these things, they became silent, glorified God, and, and, and then God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. But yet what we see in the early section of this, this passage is that they were preaching to the Jews only. There was a group of them that were going out and they were only going to the Jews. And it was kind of a model. Paul used the model later on. He would also go and he would go to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and he preached to the Jews first and then he would begin to preach to the Gentiles. And of course, Paul always got you know rejected by the Jews sometimes beat up and stoned and abused in so many ways. But it's interesting because it says that some of them, it's kind of like there were a bunch preaching to the Jews only, but then there were some that were from Cyprus and from Cyrene. They were from the area. And so they started talking to the Gentiles, the Hellenists, who were Greeks. And a great many of them began to be saved. And here's the thing. There's some, there's some interesting factors in this passage in regards to major things of, of what made Antioch a, a great church. How did Antioch become a great church? And they're kind of paralleling some of the things we looked at last week. Interestingly, in Romans chapter 15, when I jumped ahead. But the first thing is that they're declaring God's word. And we note that in verses 19 and 20. They're coming and, and, and it says that they spoke the word to them. Now that word speak is the word of normal conversation. It's not like they were preaching to them like I'm preaching to you now, although I hope I'm teaching you also, right? <clears throat> There's a difference between preaching and teaching. Preaching is the proclamation of truth. Teaching is the, the confirmation of truth. It's the, it's the understanding of truth, helping you to understand. But they spoke the word sharing Christ, in, in a sense, in ordinary conversation. I've given you a lot of illustrations in my life on how I share Christ in ordinary conversation. I just talk about Jesus everywhere I go. And, and it's a wonderful thing to do. And um, Antioch was evangelized, not by a bunch of apostles, but they were evangelized <clears throat> by members of the body of Christ who were willing to share their faith. 
you realize that that's where real uh, growth comes from. It comes from you going out into your world. You know, it's not, it's not about going and standing on a street corner with a sandwich board on you and, you know, maybe ringing a bell and saying, the end is near, the end is near. Which, by the way, I don't know if you read anything recently, but the end of the world is today. I don't know if some guys have predicted that. There's some, uh, I'm, I'm all for it, right? That the Lord wants to come to the rapture today. But as soon as people start naming dates, I get real, I get upset with them because when you say that's the date, then it's not the date. Because the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. So you just ruined it. So stop giving dates. Remember, there was a guy years ago, 94 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1994. And he had to update it. 21 reasons why Jesus is coming in, you know, every time. And he had all these dates. And he's gone on to be with the Lord. And uh, he found out he was wrong. <laughs> and it's interesting how, how as the gospel goes forth, there's great success. And they didn't only declare the word of God, but they also were enabled by the power of God. Notice verse 21. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. I really like that. The hand of the Lord was with them. I don't know about you, but I want the hand of the Lord with me when I go places. And 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 it was with them that in, in a sense that they had that God had empowered their preaching so that many were saved. You know, we got to face that, that. That there's nothing fancy, nothing that we can do in our, in our lingo or our way. I mean, you've got to know the truth. You've got to know the information. But it's the Holy Spirit. It's God that, that infuses power into what we say and do. Amen? You know, I mean, you can't. I can save anybody. I've had people tell me that. Oh, Pastor Chris, you saved me. <laughs> no, I didn't. If I saved you, you're not saved. <laughs> no, you need to be saved by God. You need to be saved by Christ. He's the only one who can save. And the power has to come from him. If, if I'm trying to do it in my own power, what am I doing? It's, it's, of, it's of no value. But three different times, he, he, he underscores here. Luke just gives this thing in verse 21, 24. And 26, on the, on the numbers of people that are being impacted by these guys who are preaching. It says that many are coming. Many are turning to the Lord. And, and there was an estimate done, you know, in, in, uh, they were successful in the Nicene Council of 325. There was an estimated 200,000 Christians in Antioch. Can you imagine? Talk about a megachurch. <laughs> right, we say mega church, you know, 10,000, 8,000 people, 200,000 Christians. I'm sure they had multiple meetings. I'm sure they didn't have 200,000 met at one time. But I mean, there was a, just a, a revival. It's nearly, a, you know, like a, a fourth of the whole population, you think of that. That's revival. You know, that was going on in, in Wales a number of years ago. I, I visited Wales and I actually went into the uh, library in Wales and they have in there the actual newspaper articles of the revivals. And, and every day, the newspaper would print how many people got saved the night before in the newspaper. Newspaper is a, is a piece of paper you use. You open. <laughs> I do that with young people because they don't know what we're talking about. Yesterday, we were talking with some of them. They, they, there were a few things we said. They're like, huh? 
But they, it, it, they literally printed it. And every day they would say 9,000 people came to the Lord last night or 850 people or 2,000 people every day in Wales. And there was so much revival that went on in Wales and also throughout all of England. The bars all shut down. They couldn't keep any business. Nobody was going in and getting drunk. In fact, there's a story about the, about the, the mules and the horses that they used to cuss at the horses and the mules to get them to do what they wanted them to do. And then, and then when they all got saved, they stopped cussing and the mules quit working. <laughs> like, I'm not working anymore. You're not, you're not speaking my language. You know? Dumb mules didn't know any better. That's the problem. The mules didn't get saved. Just the people got saved. But they, they, you know, they were enabled by the power of God. And, and then also there's the grace of God is working within here in verses 22 to 26. He, when, when he comes, when Barnabas comes, he says he saw the great grace that was there. You know, grace is something you can see. Isn't that interesting? He saw the grace of God. What does it look like when you see the grace of God? I think you see people smiling and happy even though they're sinners and they need help. That's the grace of God. You see people forgiving one another and loving one another in spite of mistakes they make. And we've talked all about this grace of God since I've been here and how important it is and how essential it is to proper ministry. If you become a church that becomes legalistic, you are doomed as a church. And as a Christian, you are a miserable person if you're legalistic. There's nothing worse than pointing out everybody else's sins. You know, being a sin sniffer, sort of. It's not a good thing. And so the word gets back to Jerusalem on what's going on over there, and they send Barnabas, right? And uh, the death of Stephen goes on, and that, was, that shook the world up, and there's this persecution happening all around. And, and yet, it's interesting, there's persecution, Stephen dies, and yet they're still worried about Gentiles getting saved without getting circumcised. That's where their mind is. You guys aren't getting circumcised. What's wrong with you? And that was the defining issue since Christianity originated from Judaism that the first Christians really thought to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew. And that's the way their minds worked. And even though Peter had done what he did with the Gentiles, remember, that's just one event. It isn't like, oh, now we're completely open to all the Gentiles and the way that's going to work. They may have just thought, well, that was the way they worked with Cornelius. But, you know, these Gentiles still need, they're going to need that circumcision. In fact, it went on and on through the years. Paul faced it in Galatia with the Galatians. And, you know, he said, "If, if anyone preaches any other gospel, but the gospel which I preach unto you, which is the gospel of grace... Here's what Paul said. Let them be accursed. That means let them be damned. That's really what it means. Let them be rejected. They can't, you cannot preach a, a false gospel. So they chose Barnabas, Barnabas to investigate this. And they sent him to Antioch and he came and he saw that grace. And you know, we can just get a hint about who Barnabas is. Now we know Barnabas a little bit, remember? Barnabas is the guy who in the early part of the church in chapter 4 he donated funds or donated his land to the church to be sold for the church's benefit. And then we see the story right after that of Ananias and Sapphira who tried to do the same thing, sort of. Only they cheated. And they ended up uh, kind of stiff over that. <laughs> but we know, we know that Barnabas, he, his name, his actual name was Joseph, but they changed his name to Barnabas. 
because it means son of encouragement. And look at what he says about him, that he was glad and encouraged them all with a purpose of heart. In verse 23, that they should continue with the Lord. He comes in, Barney, he shows up and he says, hey guys, I'm so glad you're into the grace of God. This is really great. And then he says, he says, I want to encourage you with a purpose of heart. You know, salvation is a, is a, is a, is not a head thing. You can come to an intellectual knowledge of believing without actually being saved. I remember this conversation I had with this young fellow over in Geneva. That's what he said. He said to me, I have the, I understand it here, but I don't have them here. I said, well, move them. <laughs> move this here. Believe with your heart. Remember, it says, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the heart is the innermost part of us. It's the, it's, it's really the wording in the Old Testament was bowels. It's your bowels, the depth. It's the inside. And of course, it's not the organ. It's the, it's speaking of the, the emotion, the, the, the uh, soul, the mind, the emotion. You believe with that. It's, it's not just an intellectual belief. People can come to an intellectual assent that Jesus is Lord without coming to a belief and being born again. And so he encourages them, the purpose of heart, that they should continue in the Lord, continue with the Lord. And it says about Barnabas that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's a great guy to send out. That's the same thing they said of the deacons. They were full of the, of the Holy Spirit and faith of the early church. Men who are filled with the Spirit and filled with faith. Barnabas came in, and, and, and then when he comes, a great many were added to the Lord. You know, Barnabas is coming in, and he's just affirming what's going on. And more and more people are coming to Jesus. You know, when revival happens, and, and, and listen, it's a sovereign work of God. We can't make it happen. But when it happens, it is so fun. And I, can, I've been, I was a part of a, a revival in Applegate in, uh, years ago in, in the Applegate area. I mean, we would go to a baptism and, and we'd baptize 100 people in a day in the river. And, and sometimes they weren't even people that came to church. They were just hanging out in the park. I'll never forget this one time. We're, we're doing this baptism. And I'm standing up. I'm watching the baptism. This guy walks up. And he's got a beer can in his hand. And he walks up like this and he's watching the baptism. There's music playing and he's drinks his beer. All of a sudden he goes, I'm not drinking that anymore. He walked down and he got baptized. He didn't even go to the church. He just walked in. That's a move of the Spirit. And when you see that, it's so wonderful. Oh, that God would bring us a revival. Amen? Amen. We need revival. We need a fresh move of the Spirit. This country needs that. It's the only hope for the United States of America if we're ever going to make it. And even if we get revival, it doesn't mean we're going to make it. Because, you know, revival isn't about political revival, just so you know. You know, revival, it, 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 we didn't have a revival under Donald Trump. Just, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble today, but that was not a revival. No, revival, in fact, you know where revival starts? Right here, right here, in the church, in the hearts of Christians. In fact, revival isn't even salvation. Salvation is the result of revival. Revival takes place in the heart of us because you can't revive something that's not already vived, right? 
You got to be alive. The word vibe is alive. That's what it means. So in other words, you're alive. You're a Christian. You're alive. You're born again. But you need to be revived, right? And that's what's happening here. It's, a, is, is, it's, it's an incredible work of the Spirit. And no better choice to go than Barnabas, the encourager, originally, by the way, from Cyprus. So that he knows these people. He knows their, their way. And he, it says that he was a good man. He was a talented, probably very educationally talented, good in so many ways. But it wasn't because he was good, but it was because he was filled with the Spirit. See, being a good man, you can only be a good man if you're filled with the Spirit, because there's no, good, no one good but God. So you're only good when God deposits his Spirit in your life. Remember, Jesus said that. There's none good but God, because they said to him, good teacher. He said, oh, you're calling me good. But basically, Jesus was saying, you call me good, you call me God, because there's none good but God. And though the grace of God might be invisible, you can see the effect of the grace of God. Amen? So when Barnabas saw the evidence of this, he's glad, he's excited, and, and he encourages them. That word encouraged is, by the way, the word parakle, which is connected to parakletus. The Holy Spirit is the parakletus. And so Barnabas is just practicing the gift of the Spirit that God's given him of being an encourager. And when he says there that they should, they should stay with the Lord, it's the idea of cleave to the Lord. Kind of like they talk about in Genesis where a, a man has to leave his husband or his wife and, and, and cleave unto, a man has to leave his, husband or his, his family. It's Anyways, to cleave to his wife. You guys get the idea. I'm going all over the place, men leaving their wives. You don't want that. But then we see Paul, or excuse me, Barnabas brings Saul or Paul the Apostle back to Antioch. Now, they had departed many years earlier. Paul had gone off to Tarsus after being in Jerusalem, after he'd been persecuted already. And they just said, you know, Paul, you Saul, you need to go to Tarsus. Now, we don't know exactly what went on in Tarsus. We know he was there from eight to ten years and we know that he tells us in Galatians that he was ministered to by Jesus in the deserts of Arabia. So we know that there's a gap here that's going on, and Barnabas hasn't seen his good friend Saul in years. And isn't it very interesting that here's Barnabas, and he's got this happening thing. He could have been the pastor of the megachurch. But what does he do? Goes to find his friend Saul. He wants to make sure this is done the right way. And he's very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He knew he needed help with the, the growth of this church. He knew he couldn't handle it. So he goes and he goes to someone else. And, and he raises up Saul of Tarsus. And who becomes, we know, the great apostle Paul. And it's interesting that he didn't send to Jerusalem. He didn't go back to the mothership. He didn't go back to Jerusalem and say, Hey, give me a, you know, give me a deacon so-and-so or... You know, but no, he goes to Saul, which means he's, he's really sensitive to the Spirit, and he knows the call on his life. He and Paul had become friends already, and, and no doubt Paul had shared with him the burning desire he had to be, to preach the gospel. You know, a lot of us, you know, you get, you get a call from God, and, and you do get put on the shelf for a while. That's what happened to me. I mean, I wasn't on the shelf. I was in the business world, but I wasn't in the ministry, and I wanted to be in the ministry. But I was in the business world for 18 years before I went into pastoring. And it's okay. It's good. 
I was used by God in that role. But you know, you have this desire. I I really had died to it at one point. I thought I'm never going to be a pastor. It's never going to happen. But then the Lord, you know, he just kept on. And eventually I stepped into the ministry and was used by God in that. And I've been used, hopefully still being used. (laughs) But you know, we wonder what was, what was Saul of Tarsus doing in Tarsus during this time? You know, he spent Three years in the desert of Arabia. We know he spent this time being discipled by Jesus. But what was he doing other than that? Well, you've got to be sure and know that he was preaching the gospel. And he probably had a good following in Tarsus. He probably had many people that he was discipling and ministering to, no doubt. So it says when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that for a whole year, verse 26, they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people and the disciples were called first called Christians in Antioch. Very interesting. You know, Paul, he's there with Barnabas. Imagine this team, Paul and Barnabas. Imagine yourself being a part of that church. And you're sitting under the discipleship of the Apostle Paul and the great encourager Barnabas. What a great thing that would be, amen? Like What a, what a Bible school. But it's interesting because what Paul did or excuse me, what Barnabas did for Paul, you know, it needs to be practiced today. There are times when some have to step aside. You know, mature Christians need to enlist others to encourage others in their service for the Lord. Let others be raised up. That's what Barnabas did. You know, in my church in New Jersey, uh, so back in uh, about 2017, I took a sabbatical for six weeks. And then in 18, we started to discuss the, the transition to my son as becoming the pastor of the church. He'd been on staff already for 13 years. So everybody knew in the church, eventually he's going to step in to the role. But a lot of, you know, so rumors started going around a little bit. We kind of leaked it on purpose just to kind of see what people would say, you know, and then, and then we did it that way on purpose because then we start, you know, kind of talking about it with people. And a whole number of people came to me, but Pastor Chris, you're still young. I said, I'm not that young. You still have lots of energy. I don't have that much energy. But, I, but they, they were like, why now? Like you could still pastor the church. And I could. I could have kept going. And I could have pastored the church. But the Lord spoke to me that my son was ready. And the Lord spoke to me. And the words that he gave were similar to what, what I think Paul did. That, that he must increase, I must decrease in that sense. Now, not in the same way that John the Baptist had to de- in- decrease for Jesus, but that the Lord showed me it's his time, that God's raising him up for such a time as this, and I need to step back. And people have marveled. They've, they've said to me, you gave us so much. Like, what? You actually let him run the church, that kid? He's 36 years old, by the way. He's not a kid. You actually give them the reins? You let, I said, look, if I'm out, I'm out. You know, I'm either in or I'm out. It's, I, I, I'm not going to control things. I know some fellows that have done that. They stepped out of their churches, but they're still they're pulling the puppet strings. They're not the pastor, but they're, they're kind of like this. You know? you know, it was a policy I was reading about D.L. Moody that each new Christian in his church was given a task soon after their conversion. It might have been only passing out hymnals or ushering people to their seats, but they had to be busy. They had to be active in ministry. This has been lost. This has been lost. There's a need 
for every person in the church to be serving in ministry. Do you understand that? And if you're not serving, and I get it that some of you are at you know retirement age and you're sitting back and all. Listen, you don't retire from being a Christian. And you don't retire from serving the Lord. So if you're not serving somewhere in a church or in ministry, and some it doesn't have to be in the church, it could be outside the church. But if you're not serving with your life, then you're not fulfilling the purpose of your life. Do you realize that? We are called to serve him. And so I, I exhort you today in the name of Jesus to find a place to serve him. And there are things, there are needs, there are places. You guys know it. And they've asked for help with various things, or Sunday school and, and ushering and making the coffee in the morning and lots of different things right here within the church. And maybe, you know, you, maybe I'm stepping on toes, but you know what? This is my last Sunday. I don't care. <laughs> Which I should give a quick update on that because I know we have some visitors today. Pastor John has been on sabbatical for, uh, it'll be three months coming soon. And unfortunately for him, he had a massive heart attack while on sabbatical. And he's, he's recovering. He's doing well. We had some time with him yesterday. He had his first outing yesterday at Lee's house with the, uh, some of the uh, Fox students came. I, I guess we wore them all out because there's only one of them here today. <laughs> but we had, a, we had a great time. Well, there's some guys over here, but they didn't come to the house. They didn't get, you guys missed the meat. Anyway. It was really great, and, and, but he's doing really well. Pastor John's doing really well, and he's hoping to be back here with, you know, by the end of the month is the plan. So uh, you're going to get some treats in the next few weeks. But, but, uh, but this is my last week here, so I can say whatever I want. <laughs> you want to you invite me over for dinner because I'm not going to be here anyway. <laughs> so. But they work together here, Paul and Barnabas, working and preaching and sharing and, and basic ministry to these Gentile converts. Listen, when you have brand new converts, they need to be discipled in the Lord. You know, it's not just about getting saved. Uh, this team of Barnabas and Paul uh, is just an incredible thing going on here. Um, and, but you notice it, it's Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, and then it becomes Paul, Paul and Barnabas. You see, Paul gets raised up as the leader. And in their first missionary journey, he's the one. He's out there. And then they do have a falling out later on, very sadly so. Uh, but God restores them even, I think, at the end. So Barnabas and Paul instruct these new believers for a whole year. And making disciples. Evangelism is not just bringing people to Christ. But remember, the second part of the Great Commission is teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, Jesus said. So there's an instruction involved. Now, we also note here that it says they were first called Christians at Antioch. The term Christian was not used or coined until this point. And prior to this, they've been known as believers or disciples was probably the most common word, which means learners. But they were also called saints, right? The, the, many times, even when Paul writes his epistles, he says, that they were, you know, to the saints at Philippi, the saints at Colossae. And, and, you know, a lot of times, I don't know if you were raised, I was raised in the type of religion where a saint was someone who did something, you know, amazing. They walked on water or something like that, you know. They did a miracle and, they, and there's a canonization. You guys are familiar with that, right? Right? So I was raised in that. And, 
And uh, they had a St. Christopher, and they even had medals. I had a St. Christopher medal, but then they defrocked him. They unsainted that guy. I don't know if it was because it was my name was connected. I don't think it had anything to do with it. I didn't try to do that. But they, they, so, you know, we have these various ones. And even Mother Teresa became a saint. You know, she's, but I got to tell you guys something. I mean, you probably don't know this. You're a saint. Saint Ornery. Saint, <laughs> that doesn't work, does it? No, it's Saint Nancy. <laughs> No, but we're all saints. And, and listen, you're either a saint or you ain't. <laughs> because you're, if, you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're born again, then you are a saint. It's not that you're you know, higher than somebody else. Everybody who's a believer is a saint. Because a saint is someone who's set apart, means set apart, holy, set apart. You're going to heaven. That's what it means. So we know that they were called saints. They were called believers. We were called witnesses. Remember, Jesus said, you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. That word witness actually is where we get our word martyr from, martyros. And that, that idea of being a martyr was the giving of your life because they knew they were going to face that and it became known as that. I just read a story this morning just of a sad a brother. In, uh, they didn't even give his name. There's a, there's a web page I'm connected to, it's a, it's a, and it's a... Facebook thing they put out called 838. And so you, pr- you pray at, at 838 in the morning and 838 at night. It's designed that way. But it's, it's about per- persecution around the world. And a, a brother in, um, I think it was Iran, was just convicted of, because it's an anti-Muslim. He became a Christian and they said, well, you're against the Muslim faith. So he's convicted. He's been, he's been sentenced to death row for being a Christian. That's a martyr, right? And so we have all these various names, but it's interesting. They were called Christians. The name Christian comes from the idea the I-A-N means belonging to or a party of. So you're belonging to or a party of Christ. You are, you are um, connected to Christ. But unfortunately, the name Christian has become watered down, has it not? Many people who've never been born again use the term Christian. The whole religion I just referred to, they call themselves Christians. But I can tell you, in that religion, I was not a Christian. Now, I'm not saying there are no Christians there. There are Christians. But unfortunately, there are many people who name themselves Christians, really more that they're not pagans. But they're not really believers. They're not really born again. Because if you're not born again, people say, well, what is the difference of a born-again Christian and a Christian? Listen, there is only one kind of Christian, real Christian. It's a born-again Christian. There is no other. You cannot be a Christian without being born again. Because Jesus said, if you're not born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And being a Christian is all about going to heaven, right? And so the fact that Christ died for us, and we, it's all about personal relationship with Christ through what he did for us. And so the believers in the early church, they suffered for being Christians and here's an interesting question. If you are arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Something to consider. Now, they also were dedicated to generous giving. I want you to note this in the end of this, in this, this church. Verse, chapter 11, verse 27 through 30. It tells us that there was a, a famine coming. And it tells us the famine is coming to the whole world. You've got to note that. 
And yet, even though the famine is coming to the whole world, these believers, these Christians, these saints in Antioch said, we're going to put something aside for Judea, for the Jerusalem church. This is really amazing because they were going to face the same famine. It was coming. So why wouldn't you know? The natural thing would be to hoard it. Save everything. Don't send anything on. But no, they had a giving heart. Famine's coming. It's coming to everybody. Because they they decided to give as they had the ability, it says. You know, that's a great note for giving, to give as you have the ability. If God's blessed you, bless others. You know, bless the ministry. Bless others. Give to others. Give them in any way you can. And it's one thing to give to others when you know you have more than enough, but it's entirely another when you give knowing that you may suffer for the giving. So the heart of these people was incredible. And we see this this work of Paul and Barnabas and and their connection to each other. We're going to see much more about that as our time goes on here. They were such interesting men and very different from one another. Paul, I'm sure, would be described in many ways as a type A personality. He was the guy. He's the go for it. I'm, I'm going. You coming? If you ain't coming, I'm going anyway. Because <laughs> in that later story with John Mark, they bring John Mark, who is Barnabas's nephew, with them on their mission trip. Then John Mark gets skittish and he goes back. He, 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 what happened? We don't know. He got scared. Something happened. Maybe Paul got beat up and he didn't like it. So he goes back. And then the next mission trip they're going on, Barnabas wants to bring him with him. Paul says, no way. And Barnabas says, oh, we got to give the guy a second chance. Paul says, no, I'm going. And that guy slowed me down last time. He's not slowing me down again. And it says there was a great contention among them. These two wonderful men of God had contention. Can you imagine? You've never heard of two men of God having contention, have you? But here they were having this contention. And so Barnabas took John Mark and he went one direction. And Paul took Silas and he went another direction. And God blessed both of them, I believe, but you never really hear, hear about Barnabas and John Mark. But later on, at the end of his life, you know who Paul asks for? Send me John Mark. He's good for me. Apparently, clearly, there had been a reconciliation and probably one with Barnabas too. He's probably going to be with the Lord by that time. So in conclusion and application today, what a great church in Antioch. Don't you agree? Only one person agrees with me. Did you guys, do you guys like the church of Antioch? Antioch? And a great team of Paul and Barnabas coming together in, this, in the coming weeks. Again, you're going to see more about that. In fact, they will send out the first missionary trip from the church in Antioch, this very place. And imagine that spawned missions. That's the beginning of missions all over the world. And how many mission trips have there been since then, huh? And I don't know about you, but I'm glad of the name of being a Christian, the real name of being a Christian. And that, that is being one who is connected to Christ. Among Christ. I'm among Christ. I'm part of Christ. He's part of me. He's in me and he's in you and he's upon us and he's, a, he's, he's around us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. That's the work of the Spirit through Christ. Jesus Christ, your Lord, your Master, your Savior. And what a great Savior we, we serve, right? So may we learn to be encouragers like Barnabas and lift up others greater than ourselves, 
Another great thing that we see in this text. And may others increase and we decrease. My friend Gail Irwin has a bumper sticker. And it just says, others. I think that's great. Just to think of others. Even as Paul wrote in Philippians that we're not to look out only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Notice it's a given that you're going to look out for your own interests because we're incredibly selfish, are we not? I mean, I don't know about you, but I woke up this morning and all I thought about was me. First thing this morning. And I really think you thought about me. (laughs) And you think I thought about you. But I didn't think about you. I thought about me. You know why? Because I'm selfish. I'm selfish. So I have to ask the Spirit to make me one who thinks of others. Because that's our nature. May God lead you to know your role, to know what you're called to, and to fulfill it. Even as Barnabas did. He took his position. He didn't care about fame and fortune. He stepped down so Paul could step up. May God lead you in that. Let's bow our hearts. So, Father, again, we're so grateful for your grace today, for your love for us, for your incredible word that gives us such encouragement as we think of the encouragement that Barnabas gave. Lord, we receive that encouragement from your spirit even today. And Lord, we ask you today that you'd touch our hearts and you'd minister our hearts as we close this service. And Lord, I again personally want to thank you for this church and their hospitality and their love for me. And uh, Lord, how there's just a connection. And even if we never see each other until heaven, when we see each other in heaven, there's going to be a glorious reunion. So bless each one here today, we pray. Father, we lift up Joanne to you as she's facing medical issues. We pray again for Pastor John, that you raise him up quickly. We pray for, uh, Lord, as I read about Haiti today and the craziness going on there, we pray for your mercy upon those people, the violence and things that are happening. Lord, we, we trust in you. And Lord, I ask, Lord, if there's someone here among us who's not born again, maybe they've been playing as a Christian and acting like a Christian, but they don't know you, that, Lord, you convict their hearts and you'd cause them to see their great need to be born again, that you would come into their life and change their life from the inside out. And I just want to say, if there is anyone like that in that position where you, you've you been faking it, people think you're a Christian, come talk to someone, one of us afterwards, myself, Harvey, Rick, just talk to us about your relationship with the Lord, and we'll be glad to lead you uh, in a true relationship with Jesus Christ. So may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, and give you his peace. Amen.